0: All right, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and we will continue our series through Corinthians. Father, you know that we need uh, the truths from your words today. Help us as we uh, just talk about the scriptures and consider its application for our life. Help us to uh, just be open to change uh, sinful habits and practices that Uh, pervade our life you know that our hearts are full of sin and we see a lot of the corinthian church that is even replicated in our own lives help us to strive for personal holiness to be distinct from the world uh, to really just through our life uh, show the world that we follow jesus we're not caught up in what this world has to offer thank you for your son and it's in his name we pray amen All right, if you remember last week, we took a little bit of time at the beginning to kind of understand what the city of Corinth was like. I thought understanding uh, maybe its culture really helped to like bring the book to life for us. So I'm going to throw another map on the screen for you here. If you remember, Corinth was very strategically placed in Greece on this little tiny strip of land right there and it was uniquely placed in the sense that all of the land traffic going from northern Greece to southern Greece had to go through Corinth. You you can see on the map, there's no other way to get to that big peninsula on the bottom other than going through Corinth. And even some of the sea traffic that was going east to west would actually pass through Corinth as well. If you remember, I said last week, they would even pull ships out of the water at Corinth and drag them across that little strip of land and put them on the other side so that they didn't have to navigate those three or 400 miles around the bottom there. So Corinth really was a geographically significant city, uh, a major cultural and urban center in ancient times. And along with that came a lot of the stereotypes that we would think of for a big city of its day, right? It certainly had entertainment, it had thriving business, But there was also rampant immorality and idolatry. And as we read through 1 Corinthians, we see that some of the culture, some of the secular uh, environment that exists in the city had actually infiltrated the church. So from the first five chapters alone, like we discussed last week, we see division and quarreling jealousy, strife. In chapter 5, Paul addresses immorality that existed in the church. And he says, listen, even pagans wouldn't accept the kind of immorality that you guys are practicing here. This should not be the case. And I think as we're reading through Corinthians, it's easy for us to kind of cross our arms and look at all of the shortcomings of the church and say, come on, guys, what are you doing? Believers shouldn't live this way. And I would just challenge us to think, maybe a little bit more reflectively as we read through Corinthians and really discern in our own hearts if some of the things that we see that manifested itself in this church aren't also true in our lives. Um, Particularly, one thing that has stood out to me for a while now is that Paul describes the church in Corinth as being immature, as being like childlike or infants in their faith. He says, you guys are still drinking the milk of the word you guys are children of the flesh and it's not because of the immorality in chapter 5 that Paul says this Paul actually points to the jealousy and the strife that is present in the church and he says you're immature Christians for letting this exist that one hit pretty close to home for me to be honest I think sometimes we have a pretty generous evaluation of our own spiritual, you know, maturity, and we look at ourselves and we think, yeah, you know, I'm not doing the big sins, so I must be doing pretty well in life. And Paul says, are you jealous? Is there strife? Are you, are you at odds with other believers? Maybe you're not a mature Christian. James says something pretty similar, actually. He asks a question, who is wise and understanding among you? And we might think, yeah, I am pretty wise. And he says, well, if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't lie to yourself. You're not a wise person. In fact, this is wisdom that is characterized as being unearthly, excuse me, earthly, spiritual, even demonic, I've kind of been floored by those truths recently. That it is these seemingly insignificant sins, like selfish ambition, strife, jealousy, that contribute to really just an immature Christianity. So let me encourage you, as we're reading through the chapters, and we see even this week a lot more things pop up in the Corinthian church, don't look down your nose at them and say, I can't believe you guys would be doing that. Take a minute to think very reflectively and introspectively about, you know, whether or not these things have manifested themselves in your life. All right, I just alluded to this. There are a lot of problems in the Corinthian church, even in the chapters we read this week. From chapter six, we're introduced to something right out of the gate from our reading on Monday. What issue does Paul address in verses 1 to 8? Uh, Lisa? Lawsuits against believers. Yeah, lawsuits against believers. It seems to be a pretty prevalent practice in Corinth at this time um, for two believers who had a disagreement rather than trying to figure things out amongst themselves to just take it to court. To say, no way can we settle this on our own. We need a third person to come and figure this out for us. Paul is absolutely shocked that this kind of behavior is, hap- is happening in the local church. If you're looking at chapter 6, you can see that he makes an argument uh, to these people, and he says in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world Verse three, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Paul is saying, listen, the future for believers is one of judging the world, of judging angels even. If this is your future, do you guys not think that you have the capacity in this life to settle disputes between one another? Paul actually has a couple of solutions to solving these problems that had arisen in the church. In verse 5 and 7, let's just take them one at a time. What solution does Paul imply in verse 5? Barb. Yes. Yes, he says, if you guys have a problem in the church, don't go outside to a court or to a judge to solve this dispute. Find someone inside the local church. Who, who, if you can't figure out just the two of you, that you can find someone internally that can help you to navigate this. Yeah, great. And then in verse 7, what solution does Paul suggest in verse 7? Jeff? Uh, just to suffer the wrong and yeah, that one seems pretty extreme to us, right? To suffer wrong, to be defrauded. Paul says, listen, if this escalates to a point where neither of you are budging and you think that the only solution is to go to court over it, then take the initiative and say, you know what? I'll be wrong here. I'll even be defrauded so that this doesn't happen. Again, that is just almost unfathomable to us. We love to be right. We love to be proven right. None of us likes to uh, suffer wrongdoing." Paul is actually demonstrating to us that for the believer, there is something even more important than being right. That's our third question there. What do you think Paul is trying to preserve in this church? What would be even more important than winning a lawsuit? Barb? Yeah, Christ-like unity among the brethren. This has been one of Paul's like themes since chapter one. Stop being divided, be unified. We saw last week that our unity in Christ is actually something that can be used as an evangelistic tool to the world. They should be able to look at us and say, wow, they are so united. There is something supernatural taking place here. Jesus and his message must be true. Yeah, I think unity is a really big component of what Paul is getting after here. Can you think of anything else that Paul might be trying to preserve? Cynthia. God's name. Yeah, totally. It looks like you're about to elaborate on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you imagine what the world thinks when they see two Christians standing in a courtroom on opposite sides of each other, behaving like every other unsaved person that stands before them. I would suggest that taking another Christian to court is to bring reproach to the name of Christ. It just undermines all of the values that we hold near and dear that we're told to follow in the Bible. Uh, we're not being loving, we're not showing deference, we're not being forgiving, we're not thinking the best about other people when we go to court and try to resolve our disputes that way. Paul says that to have lawsuits in the first place is already a defeat. If you end up in court, you've already lost because you've neglected to seek biblical reconciliation. Our final question then, according to Romans twelve eighteen, whose responsibility is it? to live peaceably with all men. Diane, ours. Yeah, if you remember, off the top of my head, it says something like, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. That has been another rebuke to my own life personally. This, this tells us that no matter how someone else treats you, no matter what situation you find yourself in, live peaceably. Take the initiative in seeking peace with others believers. I do want to make a couple of additional comments about this text here. As I was studying it this week, you can find all sorts of resources on the internet in which authors uh, start giving situations or categories in which it would actually be okay to take another Christian to court. they get so nuanced that it really is hard, I think, for the average person to really understand these things at some level. But let me encourage you to let the Scripture speak for itself. Right? There are people who look at this text and say, well, maybe there's an exception here. Maybe this isn't exactly what it means. I can think of a scenario in which, you know, going to court would be okay. Can I just encourage you to look again at the text And God's advice to us through the Apostle Paul in verse 7 is why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? There has to be something even more important to us than being proven right, than getting compensated for wrongs done to us. Let me encourage you to really consider preserving and protecting the testimony of the church and the name of Jesus Christ and be willing to suffer wrong like the scripture says. I do have another facet, I think, to this conversation. At least as I was reading First Corinthians chapter 6, the thought came to mind, what about in like a context where someone has committed a crime, right, where the law has been broken, What does a Christian do in that situation? Here's kind of a dramatic example for you, but let's pretend that one of your loved ones gets murdered, and you call the police, and you get this investigation going, and come to find out the person who murdered your loved one is a Christian. And you're left thinking, okay, does 1 Corinthians chapter 6 apply here? Do I... Instead, take this to the local church and try to resolve this matter internally? Do we just try to seek justice within the walls of these church? That was something that I was thinking about as I was reading this text. How does that apply here? Well, I think there's a passage of scripture that we read pretty recently that helps us out with that question. It's from Romans chapter 13, speaking about the government. It says this, if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, or the government, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Very clearly, the role of the government, its God-given responsibility, is to execute justice on people who have done wrong. Additionally, John actually pointed out to me earlier in the week that in criminal cases, It is not an individual who has the responsibility to bring another individual to justice in a court setting. It's actually the state who takes it upon themselves to prosecute criminals. So it would not be one Christian against another Christian in a courtroom trying to seek justice when a crime has been committed, it is the state that does that. And I think that absolves or relieves some of the tension that you might feel when a crime is committed. Uh, am I really supposed to do this? The state takes over at that point and, and makes sure that justice is um, served. Uh, so I think in crimes or cases like that, we can understand uh, the broader context of the scriptures and bring in other, other things to support that. But maybe just a silly example, what this is saying is if someone owes you 100 bucks, don't take them to court over it if they refuse to pay you be willing to be defrauded be willing to suffer wrong moving on now to the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 paul concludes this section by talking about how we should flee sexual immorality and he says that we should glorify god with our bodies so according to verse 20 what reason is given as to why we should glorify God with our bodies. Where does Paul base this argument? Yeah, Claire. Yeah, our bodies are not our own. We have been bought with a price, exactly. And although this text doesn't really uh, elaborate on that price, 1 Peter chapter 1 does. According to that text of scripture, what price were we bought with? John? The blood. The blood. Yeah, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. First Peter says, It was not with, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The only Son of God shed his blood so that you and I could be redeemed from sin, not continue to live in it. And so what instruction does Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 give regarding our bodies? If we've been bought at the price, yeah, will. Exactly. Yeah, coming on the heels of 11 chapters of describing God's wrath and justification and sanctification, Paul's practical conclusion then is, if all of these things are true, live for Christ. Give your body as a sacrifice to him. This is the thing that makes sense. It's a form of worship. And so an applicational question then, what are some practical ways that you can practice this truth from Romans 12 today? Any thoughts or suggestions as to how we could do that in a daily setting. Yeah, Barb. I think that's a great one. Yeah. Take care of the body that God has given you. Make sure that it is healthy and able to serve him. Yeah, totally. Any other thoughts? Shane. Serve God rather than sin. sin. Totally. Yeah, I think from the context of 1 Corinthians 6, we could say, certainly don't present your bodies uh, to sexual immorality. That'd be one very obvious way that is from the context. Any others? Yeah, Titus. Interesting. Okay, could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Totally, yeah. Maybe I could summarize that just a little bit. Just because things are hard, don't neglect following Jesus. We know that being a Christian is difficult. Peter tells us to expect suffering in this life. People are going to hate us. We're going to suffer persecution. Don't take the easy way out. Totally. Great great example, Titus. Uh, I was just thinking, probably going along with that, Commit every single day to the Lord from like the moment you get up or as soon as you're able to say, God, you've given me today not to spend on myself, not to advance my own kingdom, but for you. So please give me the grace today to die to sin, to look for opportunities to serve others. Let me exhaust myself for you today, Lord. I'm yours. I've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. This really is the expectation of the scriptures. The, the Bible doesn't say that when you get saved, it's like, thanks, I got heaven. I'm going to keep living however I want. That person doesn't exist in the scriptures. When you get saved, it is a total transitioning from one master to another you were a slave to the devil and to sin and to unrighteousness but like Romans 6 describes when you become born again that mastership just changes you're not free to do whatever you want to be a slave to righteousness to be a slave to God so serve him that is the expectation of the scriptures coming now to first Corinthians chapter 7 We kind of think of this traditionally as the marriage chapter in scripture, it talks about a number of topics pertaining to marriage, singleness, divorce, just a lot of different things in there. However, it was kind of interesting to me as I was studying this passage to see that that's not exclusively what it talks about. There's an idea that is repeated in verses 17, 20, and 24 that is pretty interesting. What is that idea? Maybe read just straight from the text for me or summarize it in your own words. What idea are we introduced to from those verses? Lisa. Yeah. Yeah, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you. Remain in the condition that you've been called in. In other words, you've been put into specific situations in your life for a reason. Paul is going to say, don't try and force your way out of these categories. And he gives several examples in verses 18, 21, and 27 as to like an application of this principle. What were those examples that Paul lists off? Jeff? Yeah, yeah, he lists like these three different categories in which we should remain in the condition in which we were called, married or not, circumcised or uncircumcised, or slave or free. Maybe like three categories, we might think of them as like um, an ethical category, maybe a economic category, our marital status, and Paul says, listen, you've been put in these situations, stay in them. Question number three, who has put you in those circumstances? You can just call it out. It's easy. God. These things are not chance that you're in this. God put you there. And so what does this passage of scripture teach us about the desires we have for circumstances other than the ones we are presently in? Barb. Totally. To be content in the situation that God has put us in. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, John. Exactly, yeah. How many times do we find ourselves being discontent with stuff in life, whether or not they're in those categories? All the time. If given an opportunity to think about what we would change in our life, I'm sure we could start rattling off, you know, five things pretty easily. And if we do that enough, everyone else has better circumstances than we do. Everyone else has had better opportunities in life than we have. We start playing the victim and thinking that we are just, you know at the you know, whim of whatever circumstances in life are driving these things. We can become discouraged and depressed. We can become cynical towards God. In our discontentment, we actually begin to doubt God's sovereignty. You know, We think to ourselves, well, there's 8 billion people in the world. Can God really you know, be involved in the individual circumstances of my life? Is God really concerned for me? Can he actually do these great things with my life if I'm just stuck here? We can begin to think of God as uncaring. We can begin to think of, you know, well, if I were God, I could probably do things better than he's doing right now. I wouldn't put myself in these situations. It just breeds this discontentment with what God is doing in our life. It's a really wicked sin. It just has no regard for his plan. Maybe put positively, Paul is illustrating through these three examples here. That we are not just victims to random circumstances in life. If you find yourself enslaved, even, can you trust that God put you there? Can you find contentment even in what we would consider to be, hey, yeah, maybe not the best circumstances, and realize that in everything, God has a plan and that He is working things out and He can use us even when we are, you know, in circumstances that like aren't all that exciting for us? I, I really think that this passage of Scripture is awesome. And just reminding us, God is sovereign over all things. He knows, he will use you as he see fit, as he has done throughout human history. As the chapter continues, uh, Paul actually focuses on one area of contentment in particular that I thought is worthy of our attention. I actually didn't put a question for this. But if you're not already in 1 Corinthians 7, could you just turn there as we look at another area of contentment that I think is relevant for us today. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, Paul says this, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul is going to spend a good chunk of 1 Corinthians 7 talking about singleness. And I think I've had my uh, understanding of singleness broadened a little bit, an understanding that it's not just the 20 or 30-year-olds or teenagers who aren't married, but really, as Paul says, it's a category that includes widows and everyone who is unmarried. And I think that when we consider, like, who, might, who that might encompass even here in grace, we realize this is a pretty significant category of people that Paul is talking about here. And I'm curious how that last phrase in verse 8 strikes you, that it is good for them to remain single. Paul says, as I am. How does that strike you? That it is good to remain single. If I could just be transparent for a little bit, if I had to think back on my 20s and being single, I would probably say it is lonely to remain single. I'd probably say it feels incomplete to remain single. That maybe it's strange or looked at as inferior to remain single. I'd probably say that in my experience, it's just generally unpleasant to remain single. And here Paul is saying, it's actually good. What is informing Paul saying that this is a good thing when our experience and our culture might be saying the opposite? Does Paul answer this question? Yeah, I'll let you speak to it, Barb, before I get to it. What do you think? Yeah, Paul actually is going to elaborate maybe on some of what you're saying, Barb, in later verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll look at verse 32. Although it's alluded to prior to verse 32, I think it really comes to a head here. Paul says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Paul uses a word here, anxious, that we're not totally used to seeing in this type of context here. But really it's describing, particularly with a married person, that they are anxious not only to please the Lord, but they have a responsibility to take care of a spouse. Paul isn't saying that marriage is a bad thing, far from it in this chapter he's careful to say, no, marriage is great, you should be married. But when talking about singleness, he says there is a real opportunity here. And if we just left it at that, our culture actually presently would say that singleness is a great thing. You're right, Paul. Our, Our culture looks at singleness and says, You are free to be promiscuous if you are single. You are free to spend your time however you want. You don't have to ask someone if you can go somewhere because you're single. Go for it. Spend your money doing things however you want as a single person. You are not chained down to a relationship if you're single. And that is what our world champions as singleness. I want to be clear that that is not why Paul is saying that singleness is a good thing. Verse 35 really articulates it very well for us. Let's look at it together. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure, notice, your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says singleness is a good thing because you can focus the entirety of your time, energy, resources on serving the Lord. What an opportunity. Single people don't have kids and two people they're paying bills for and this and that or the other. They can focus in their entirety everything on pleasing the Lord. I realize that singleness can be a lonely or discouraging time of life, but let me encourage you by what Paul says in verse 31, that very last phrase in verse 31. The present form of this world is passing away. Do you believe that? Paul is insinuating that this life is not all there is. There's more to come. Sometimes I think we can be guilty of making our marital status a god and thinking that if I don't get this, I will never be satisfied. I will be incomplete for the entirety of my life. And yet paul is saying listen there's so much more to life there is a life to come live for jesus please him with everything spend your energies now making an investment that will last into eternity and if i could just you know i've kind of been coming after people who would be considered single by paul's standards here if i could just address married people for a minute as you talk about marriage to people who are not yet married, please do not communicate that marriage is the pinnacle of the Christian experience. I've had it said to me, not here, this advice to get married as fast as you can And have as many kids as you can, because it is the best thing ever. And while well-meaning, I'm sure, doesn't it have an undertone of this is what Christianity is about? That this is what you should be trying to accomplish in your life? Can I encourage you as a married person? Certainly, yes. Talk about marriage. Promote it, encourage it, help people to understand that being single for selfish selfish reasons is an immature thing. But more importantly, urge people to follow Jesus and say, this is better than even marriage. This is longer lasting. Please, let me plead with you to point to Christ and following him in everything. We have to move really quickly now through, like, three chapters. Sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's another issue that the church is divided over. Meat offered to idols. I've had my understanding on this topic even shaped this week. I think I had a wrong perspective of it, to be honest. It's a fascinating idea that in the ancient times, there were these temples all over the place that meat was sacrificed to these idols. And obviously, idols can't eat meat, And so people did. And there was kind of a conflict in the church at this point in history as to whether or not a believer could eat meat offered to idols. This isn't something that we struggle with in America today necessarily, but it certainly is something that people, or Christians rather, in other contexts have to decide for themselves. Even this week I was reading about um, maybe some ethical situations that people in other countries would have. Uh, Just one of those examples was in China when you are celebrating uh, maybe the Chinese New Year, And people are eating food that has been offered in ancestor worship. Do Chinese Christians participate in that? That's the question. I think even though we haven't experienced that personally, we can understand the tension there. By eating this food, am I affirming that my ancestor can do anything for me? Is is my presence here at this festival kind of saying two things to these people? Am I giving credibility to a false god or a false ideology? There were also two groups in Corinth, and Paul addresses a rebuke in verses 1 and 2 to those who knew the truth. What does he say to them? What rebuke does he have for people who have this knowledge? Claire. Yes. He says, you guys have a knowledge... That has actually puffed you up that knowledge is described in verse um, 4 that an idol has no real existence that there is no god but one those things are true idols are not real there's only one god and so these people are thinking yeah i can eat meat offered to idols anywhere under any circumstance in fact we see one of those circumstances in verse 10 people were actually going to an idol's temple And eating the meats that had been offered to an idol, not in the privacy of their own home, but in a temple. They think that their knowledge about this issue has given them free reign to do whatever they want. After all, idols aren't real, but it's puffed them up, it's made them arrogant toward people who disagreed with them. How does Paul say that love would respond in this situation? It edifies, yeah, it builds up. It encourages other people. It realizes that not everyone agrees with me, and rather than just flexing my rights on people, I should build them up, encourage them. So according to this text of Scripture, how would you interact with others who know less than you and make decisions that appear uneducated to you? What do you think? We love them. Yeah, could you think of any examples in which we might have to practice this, like today? Shane? Exactly. Yeah. I I was thinking about uh, Bible translations. Sometimes there can be like a a sense of superiority from one person to another who says, you think this about a Bible translation? Come on. That is love that is being arrogant. We should instead put our arms around other people and build them up and encourage them. All right. Second part of chapter 8. Uh, In verse 13, Paul comes to a pretty extreme conclusion uh, to demonstrate how serious he is about protecting the conscience of other people. What does he say in verse 13? Well, that he would never eat meat if he knew that it would cause a brother to stumble. And this illustrates about Paul, like I just said, that he is not so concerned about doing whatever he wants in Christianity as he is about protecting other people respecting their, cons- their consciences. Uh, we'll skip some of these questions and keep going here into chapter 9. This really, chapters 8, 9, and 10, are all answering the question of can you eat meat offered to idols. Chapter 9 doesn't seem like it on the surface, but if you remember, at the end of chapter 8, Paul says, listen, I will lay aside my rights to eat meat if it means that a brother is encouraged, that I don't violate their conscience. And so chapter 9 is all about laying aside rights. Paul says, I've laid aside the right to take a godly wife. I've laid aside the right to be compensated for my work. For what purpose? In verses 19 to 23, what four groups of people does Paul say that he became like? He lists four groups or categories of people that Paul said, hey, I've become like this. Joan. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I have them listed. It's the Jews, uh, those under the law, those outside the law, and the weak. Yes. Paul says, I've become all these things to all these different categories of people, but he makes an important clarification in verse 21. Anyone notice that? For those who are outside the law, when Paul says, I've become outside the law myself, he makes an important clarification, and he says not that I've come from outside the law of God, I still am under the law of Christ, insinuating that people might take what he's saying about being outside of the law and turn that against him and say, "Well, so you're just becoming lawless, Paul, to reach people? You're becoming all things to all men and doing things that a Christian should not be doing to try and reach Gentiles? Maybe a modern equivalent would be, yeah, I go to the club to, you know, share the gospel with people. Well, no, that's not what Paul is saying. He, he is still under God's law, and has a desire to please him with personal holiness and his life, but he has become like a Gentile in some context, not following the Jewish law, so that he can reach these people. Mm -hmm. And that's the purpose that he does these things. Uh, Again, we'll kind of skip some of these questions here. Look at the last one. What are some of the ways that we could implement a similar strategy to Paul today? Any ideas? How, How can we like Paul says, become all things to all men. In what kind of situation could you see yourself doing something like that? Any thoughts? Titus? Yeah. Not sitting on your high horse and saying, well, I've never said it. But yeah, admitting you're a sinner to other sinners. Totally. Any other, like, very practical things? John? Well, just love everybody. Yeah. I think you identified a really good one finding commonality with unbelievers. If your neighbor likes fishing, what should you do? Go fishing. Go fishing. <laughs> yeah, buy a fishing pole, watch some YouTube videos, go talk to him about something that he's interested in if you could care nothing about it. And find a common point that will lead you to an opportunity to share the gospel. I think Hudson Taylor did this really well in 1800s China when he went there and discovered that dressing like a European was a distraction. And he said, okay. I'll shave the top of my head and leave a ponytail and dress like a Chinese person so that I can reach these people for Christ. We have one minute left and a lot to cover. Uh, Let's close the circle then on meat offered to idols. Let's skip to chapter 10. Um, The question is still outstanding. Hey, can I go to a temple and eat meat offered to an idol? Paul says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Look at verse 19. What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul is saying, no, idols certainly we know they don't exist. It's a piece of wood in a temple. But when you participate in the Lord's table, there is even an action on your participation that you are identifying with the Lord. Similarly, when you go to a temple and you participate in eating food that has been offered to an idol, you are actually participating in an act of worship, not to a piece of wood, but to a demon. So no way you cannot go to a temple and eat the food that has been offered there because of its association with demonic activity. Paul is going to give a couple more specific examples. He's going to say you don't have to go on a witch hunt trying to figure out if meat has been offered to idols. In verse uh, 25, he says, hey, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So go to the market. Maybe that meat had been offered to an idol, but in the market, the association isn't there with demons. Don't ask any questions about it. You're free to eat. He says a little bit later, if an unbeliever invites you to their house, and nothing is said about where that meat was sourced, eat it. However, if someone says to you, this was offered to an idol, you cannot eat it anymore because that association with demons is present again. I'm quoting roughly what I heard this week. Behind every false religion is demonic activity. Right? We cannot be so ignorant to think that people just of their own, you know, desire, have come up with all these different religions. No, there is demonic activity behind false religions that is actively trying to lead people away from the truth. We are way out of time, so let's pray and we'll be done. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness and its application to our life. As we just think about 1 Corinthians 7, help us with everything to please you, to let every decision we make in life to be with the intent to please you. Help us to be able to give an answer for everything in our life and say, yeah, I'm doing or not doing this because I believe it brings glory to God. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.